In Your Element is a show dedicated to helping you find your element. Every episode will be showcasing an idea, a story, or an interesting person who's living in their element with the hopes of helping you find your own. Being in your element can mean many things. To some, it's a state of peak flow where you perform at your best, are happy and content with life, and are doing interesting things which are worthwhile talking about. The idea is to uncover stories of people who are living in their element and share wisdom on what it takes for others to also help find their own. So my guest today is Keith Blakemore Noble. Now Keith has a really interesting career where he helps people to transform their deepest fears into their greatest strengths. Since 2010, he has helped over 5,000 people across the planet to transform their lives, which is why he is the UK's number one fear strategist. Prior to moving full-time into helping people, he spent the best part of two decades in IT, including leading a team with members in the UK, Norway, and New Zealand. He's gone from reprogramming and upgrading computers to reprogramming and upgrading people's minds. And the latter definitely sounds more interesting and rewarding. So Keith, I am so excited to have you on the show. You've got such an interesting story and background. And, you know, I'd love to just dive straight into it and ask, you know, what brought you to this really interesting career path? What was the 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 pull to to fear? Great question, Aaron, and thank you for having me here. It's 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 great to it's great to have have this chat. What what moved me from IT to to doing what I do now was basically I used to be painfully shy um, for the first forty years of my life. I was kind of terrified of speaking with strangers. Uh, I used to think that I was lacking in confidence. I now realize that uh, basically I had uh, social phobia. Just the thought of speaking with strangers was was oh, terrifying. There's no way, for example, you and I could be could be chatting like this. It's like, ah, oh, how can I speak with somebody I don't know? So um, that's partly why I ended up in IT, because it's, it's great. I loved IT. I enjoyed working with computers. And you didn't really have to speak to many people. It's perfect. <laughs> but... Um, with uh, with any career, uh, as uh, as you do well and you, and you rise up, you eventually reach that point where it's no longer what you know, but it's who you know that gets you future, uh, gets your career progression. And as you can imagine, being painfully shy, avo- actively avoiding meeting new people, that kind of limits your your options for growth there. And um, also, it was having as you can imagine, quite an adverse impact on my social life, what there was of it. How can you you socialize when the thought of hanging out with strangers is terrifying? And things things came to a head one Christmas. Um, This was kind of just before the days of of Facebook and and such like really, really being big in people's lives. I was a member of an online community and I got on with the people there nicely. It was great chatting from behind the uh, computer keyboards. Brilliant. And somebody suggested, because most of us lived with, at that point, I lived down south, most of us lived within about an hour or hour or so's commute of London. Someone suggested, why don't we all get together and have a Christmas party? And I thought, why not? I know these people. I've been talking with them for for the past year. How hard can it be? And I went there and discovered very quickly how hard it was, because there's a huge difference between talking via text on the uh, computer keyboard and actually physically meeting someone and being face-to-face with them. So there I was basically in a room full of strangers, in effect. And it was it was terrifying. Um, I had a panic attack. I actually locked myself in a cubicle in the gents, had a panic attack, took about half an hour for me to calm back down again. And I then fled. I ran from the, the venue, didn't stop running till I was on the train. I didn't start calming down until the train was actually pulling out from the from the station. I, I, I didn't even stop to pick up my coat from the from the coat stand because that would have meant speaking to somebody. And at that point, I was in just such a panic. So <clears throat> as I was on the train, starting to head home, I was thinking, you know, you can't go through life like this. You've, enough's enough. You've got to do something. What's life going to be like in five years, 10 years time if you don't? do something. It's, it's going to suck. And by chance, coincidence, whatever you want to call it, um, a friend dragged me, pretty much dragged me along to a, a weekend personal development seminar um, short, shortly after. 
And I was I was a bit skeptical, but I thought, well, I'll go and see what see what it's all about. And it had a really profound effect. And I made some made progress in in the event itself. And I could feel, hey, this stuff really, really does does do something. Now, because it was a free event, obviously their plan was to sell as many people as they could into their, their into their trainings. And that's a perfectly valid way of doing things. I sort of thought, hmm, I've made some progress in just these two days. These tools that they're that they're selling, teaching how to use these tools. It was NLP and hypnosis and coaching, that, that sort of stuff. Uh, I could use that to sort myself out. So me being me, I signed up, bought their entire everything they were offering, the NLP, the hypnosis, the coach training, speaker training, the lot, thinking, well, might as well do it all. Went through it all, used that to sort myself out, found I was good at it, found I enjoyed doing it, and thought, hmm, I've been in IT for a long time. I'm getting a bit bored of it. It'd be nice to to change careers, but I had a high-paying job and I had all the outgoings and the mortgage and everything that, that, that goes with it. I couldn't couldn't afford and then another magnificent piece of luck. A few months later, I was calling to my manager's office. And he said, Keith, sorry, because of the current finances of the company, your position is now being made redundant. Basically, here's a wheelbarrow full of cash, never come back. And that was the point at which I thought, you know what? If ever I was looking for a sign, this is it. Because I, <clears throat> I enjoyed coaching. I wanted to do it. The only thing that was holding me back was I couldn't, couldn't afford to take the big pay cut while I built things up. I've now just been given a big wheelbarrow full of cash. Let's do it. And that's when I transitioned into full-time coaching. And I've not looked, I've never looked back. Never looked back. Wow. That is such an interesting story. <laughs> and there's so much that I want to dive into and, and unpack there. Um, but you know, your 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 journey from from IT and in particular your I think you called it social phobia or uh, social yeah. anxiety. Yeah. That is something that really resonates with me because uh, growing up, that's something that I I really struggled with. I was terrified of interacting with um, not particularly strangers, but people that I even knew as well in 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 person. Mm -hmm. I would walk down the street, and I'm from a small place. I'm from I'm from Gibraltar, and there everyone okay. knows everyone. So you yeah. can't you can't walk down the main street without bumping into someone you know. Um, and that to me was one of the most daunting things. Um, and it's something that I, I, I really struggled with. So I resonate so much. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people in who work in IT also tend to struggle with. For some reason, um, we're kind of drawn to what makes us feel comfortable, you know, sitting behind a computer screen yeah. with our keyboard. Sometimes it's easier to send an email than it is to call someone. Um, and I'm really curious, um, do you also find um, a lot of people come to you with help to overcome this kind of social anxiety, social phobia? Do they have these backgrounds in, in IT or is that just, you know, um, like a coincidence? You, you touch on a really interesting point there. And um, <clears throat> I mean, there, is, there absolutely is, uh, there absolutely is the, uh, the stereotype uh, around IT of, of people being being socially awkward and getting on fine with computers and uh, things they can't get the computer to do are just not worth doing. You then put them in front of a person and they become tongue-tied and, and can't can't wait to get away. There's there's this stereotype. And in part, that stereotype does come is is kind of based on on reality. I mean, not everybody in IT is is shy. Not everybody in IT is has social anxiety, by by any means. But a lot of people do, and I think you're right. A lot of us gravitate to to IT because it's that's the kind of person we are: logical, analytical, in our head, able to take the time to solve all these all these problems. Fine with with doing everything on the computer computer keyboard. But interacting with people is is a very, very different thing and can for a lot of people be quite quite uh, quite daunting. So a lot do get drawn to that. And when I first set up as coaching, I um I thought, you know, I don't want to be one of those people who says, hey, I'm a coach. I can help anyone with anything because, well, you kind of people aren't looking for a jack of all trades. They're looking for somebody who focuses in their particular area. And the more you focus on it, the stronger you become on it. That's that's why I focus around fears and phobias because it's the more I've been doing it for over 10 years, 
certainly way ahead now of where I, where I was when I started as a result. Uh, so I thought, you know what? I couldn't niche following my own expertise. I used to work in IT. I was painfully shy. I know the journey. I know what it's like. I know the challenges. And I speak speak the same language. Let's let's look at and there's lots of people in IT who are painfully shy or have social anxiety or or, or whatever. So I set up uh, seeking to, to to work with such people and got very few clients. And it was uh, it took me a little while to realize what was what was going on. Many people in that situation are perfectly content and perfectly happy to to remain in that. Way. It's like well. Why, why would I want to start speaking with strangers? I'm perfectly happy sat here in the, in, in the back. Um, and again, when I look back on my situation, it wasn't until very later, uh, a lot later on in my career that I decided, you know, I have to do something about it. For the first 15 years, I was perfectly happy. Do you want to speak with strangers? No. If I can close the doors, fine. I'm, I'm happy. So, yeah, there's a lot of people in IT have those, those sorts of um, behaviors and, and outlooks on life. But they're perfectly happy with it. They don't want to change. And if you don't want to change, why would you? So that's when I started moving out into the into the wider world. So uh, wow. hopefully that answers your question in some sort of way. <laughs> yeah, that that really that paints a really colorful picture. I, I guess one of my next questions would be, what are the types of clients? And I know you wouldn't be able to get into too much detail, but you know, at a high <laughs> level, what are the kinds of people, the types of clients that come to you and what are their, what are some of their fears? What are the, some of the recurring types of fears that you usually encounter and, and, and deal with? Lovely question. Lovely question. Uh, so <clears throat> you can kind of split the, 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 the people I work with into kind of two categories. You've got uh, general public, we'll, we'll, we'll call them for want of a, a better description. And then you've got people who, who work who work in business, perhaps own own and run their own business, or they're they're, they're part of a, a small business. So, for the general public, by far the biggest um, uh, collection of fears that the people come with are uh, fears of flying, fears of height, and uh, fears of spiders. Those, those tend to be by far the the biggest and most common ones. And the thing, <clears throat> excuse me, the thing which links all of those people is they've reached the point where this fear is such a problem in their life it's stopping them doing stopping them from doing things like um lady who uh was ter- uh, scared of flying uh she also it turns out had claustrophobia as well which which didn't help with it, with the flying and her husband was actually living and working out in hong kong he was on a contract out there for, for two or three years or something like that and because of her fear of fear of flying there was no way she could she could visit visit her husband, and because of his his job, he wasn't able to come back to the UK very often. Whereas she she was retired, so she had all the time in the world she could visit him, but she couldn't because she was terrified. That that kind of drew her to go. Oh, I've got to do something. So we had our session, and a few weeks later, I, I got an email from her. Hey, I'm out in Hong Kong with my husband, and we're having a beautiful time. Completely surprised him by turning up. Like, oh, there you go. <laughs> Um, and on the business side, uh, self-employed or, or, or small business, you've got people where they have a fear and it, they know it's stopping them from, from growing their business. I can give three, three quick examples. Uh, the two most common ones are uh, speaking in front of people, whether it's on a stage in front of a thousand people or whether it's in a networking meeting, speaking in front of 20 people or even speaking in front of um, uh, some clients or whatever, Spe- speaking to groups is is a very common fear. And you reach the point where you have to do something about it because otherwise your, your, your company is just not going to grow. And worse, when your competitors will grow because they'll always be the ones who are out there speaking. And so you end up getting sidelined. Or picking up the phone and making those calls, <clears throat> whether it's prospecting calls or uh keeping customers updated or breaking bad news to customers. I know we committed to this schedule. I've, my suppliers have let me down. We, we, we have to, to delay it by a week, those sorts of things, or picking up the phone to making, make prospecting calls and, and introduce yourself to, to potential clients. There was a lady who she ran a, a, a network marketing business and what she used to do was every, every weekend she'd make a list of 25 people 
her, her plan being she was going to call five on the Monday morning, five on the Tuesday morning, and so on and so on and so on. <clears throat> she'd get to the end of the week and she found she'd called nobody. Every time she went to make a phone call, she would find lots of urgent things she had to do instead. Like, oh, there's a cobweb up in the corner. I better go and do some dust, anything to get out of making the calls. And this would happen week after week after week. You can imagine the impact that has on the business. We did our session together. Sunday night, she wrote a list of 25 people. I asked her to give me a, a call on the Monday afternoon to let me know how she got on with her five people. She phoned me on the Monday afternoon and said, I've got a problem. What's up? Well, I made my list of 25. I sat down this morning to call the first five people. I loved making those calls so much. I called all 25 people. I've got nobody to call tomorrow. It's like, now you've got a much better class of problem. And the impact on the business, as you can imagine, her business rocketed because now she was connecting. So she got over that fear that was holding her back. So with businesses and uh, business people, it's the fear which they know is holding back their, the growth of their business or them within their business. So those kind of tend to be the two most common, uh, the two different categories of people and the most common fears within them. Of course, outside of that, as you can imagine, there's all manner of different things. I mean, people can literally have a fear of, of absolutely anything. It's possible to have a fear of anything, but some things are more common than others. Wow, that is that is so interesting. There's there's a bunch I'd love to dive into, but one of the things that that really I would love to ask is you mentioned that you can be afraid of 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 anything. And so I'm really curious, what is some of the most irrational um, you know, um crazy fears that you've come across? Things that you just would not expect. Sure. Um well, the first thing, it's interesting you use the word irrational there. Um all phobias are irrational. And I don't mean that in any any uh, judging way or, or anything like that. It's part of the definition of a phobia. And if it's all right with you, we'll just explore that for, for, for a minute, take a, side, uh, a detour to explore that. Because sometimes people say, oh, I've, I've got a phobia of, of X, Y, and Z. And it turns out they haven't. They've just got a, a mild dislike of it. Because a phobia is a really intense, irrational fear of something that poses you no real threat or, or risk. It's like a spider, for example. Spiders, they can't do anything. They can't harm us. We know. because I, I used to have three phobias, social phobia, fear, uh, fear of heights, and a fear of spiders. Um, those were the three that I used to have for, for, for years. Uh, haven't, got, haven't got them now. Uh, and it's, it's so good to, to, to get rid of them. But I, I can understand what it's like. I mean, with, with spiders... Um, I remember one time I was helping friends move house and I was helping the husband and I'm, I'm six foot two tall. He's about six foot two tall. We're both well built. We were in the garage. We moved a sheet of wood away from a wall and there were hundreds of spiders behind. They all started scattering. And the two of us were terrified of spiders. We were both backs against the opposite wall going, uh, let's not tell anybody about this. <laughs> we, we knew the spiders were no threat, but it, it still doesn't stop you being, being scared. So to know if, if you have a phobia, it's an intense, irrational fear of, of something that poses you no threat. And by intense, I mean, it, it can kind of make you freeze on the spot, your heart's pounding, cold sweats, all that sort of stuff. And yet you can have fears or, or phobias of anything. A couple of the most um, strange ones, for want of a better word, one was um, a lady who had a fear of uh, vomiting. Of, of being sick and not just of her being sick, but of the thought of others being sick. Mm. Now she, she is a dancer and she lives in New Zealand and she reached the point where she was starting to get inquiries for work from America because the group that she was with, they were, they were getting lots of inquiries from America, which meant flying out there. Now for her, flying was a big problem, not because she was scared of flying, but what if there's turbulence and somebody on the plane is sick? Mm. And that was enough to, to, to kind of freak her out. Um, we did a session, got her completely over that. I mean, obviously, she doesn't look forward to the thought of throwing up. Nobody would. But she, she's, she's, she's okay with the thought of it. Uh, and I know this because I got uh, an email from her a few weeks later saying, hey, guess what? I'm in LA. I, I'm uh, at an audition for a dance troupe in, uh, in uh, LA. 
yes, go you. <laughs> so yeah, uh, fear of vomit or vomiting and just fear of the thought of other people vomiting. It was enough to stop her from following her career. And another really strange one, somebody who had a fear of the color yellow. Anything that wow. was yellow was enough to send him into, in, into panics. And that, that, is a, that was a really, really obscure one. So you, you really can be scared of, or there are, you can find anything that, that somebody w- would be scared of. And the thing to remember is, it is because a fear is an uncommon one, like yellow. There'll, there'll be very few people who have that fear. But it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean you're strange or weird. It's certainly not something to laugh at. It's just whatever, something happened in life which taught you to be to be deeply fearful of, of that thing. That's mm. so yeah. all I mean, it could happen to any of us. That is really interesting. I'd love to learn more about what exactly how fears actually develop you you mentioned it's something um you know it can have a result as of you know as a result of some kind of experience um can you dive into that and, and sort of unpack yeah. how exactly people develop irrational uh fears absolutely so there are three ways that we we, we develop fears uh, because when we're born we we are scared of absolutely nothing we have no fears whatsoever, as any, as any parents of really young children will, will testify. They're scared of nothing. <laughs> and the world can be a very dangerous place if you're not careful. So as parents and as, as guardians or as, as, as anyone that, that young children look up to, it's our responsibility to help to instill a healthy respect for the dangers of, 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 of life so that the, the kids won't end up killing themselves. Unfortunately... We don't always do that good a job of it. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we inadvertently over overstate the, the dangers. And there are three ways in which we, we learn fears. Most of our fears we develop at a young age, before the age of seven. Sometimes things will happen and we'll, we'll learn them in later life. But the majority of fears that we have, we can trace all the way back to when we were aged uh, zero to seven. And the three ways in which we learn them are through direct experience, through observation, or through being taught. And I'll just explain each one uh, in a little, a little detail. So through direct experience, imagine, imagine you're a three-year-old, or you're out in the park with, with your parents. They're off being boring, speaking with other, other, other adults, grown-ups. You wander off and have a, uh, to have a explore the park and, and, and play. You can still see your parents there. They can still see you. That's all fine. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you're, you're wandering around. All of a sudden, this this thing comes bouncing up towards you. Teeth, fur, big slobbery tongue is barking away. It's a dog coming running up, racing up to up to, to you. Now the dog just wants to play. It, it just sees, hey, yeah, someone to play with, somebody new to meet. Yay! It's barking away, tail wagging and so on. You've maybe not encountered dogs before, something not this close up. And you freak out. It's like, oh, I'm scared. Ah, and you scream. Your parents see what's happening. <clears throat> They are not close enough to be able to to pull you away or, or to protect you or whatever. So they start screaming at you to come to them and screaming at the dog to get out of the way. <laughs> when, when we're that age, our parents are like gods to us. Nothing phases them. And here they are. They seem to be terrified and they're screaming and shouting and, and so on as well. And that just sears in our brain. Oh, my word. This thing could eat me. This is dangerous. <clears throat> so at that point, we've learned this thing is a, a threat to our life. Now, our unconscious, the unconscious part of our mind, has, uh, its main function is to keep us alive and to protect us and keep us safe. So it now kind of stores in its little pad of, of very dangerous things, dog. So anytime we see a dog thereafter, that really core part, which is looking for, for threats, sees this and goes, ah, hits the red alert button, puts, puts us on, onto full alert. That happens in an instant. It takes our conscious mind a little bit of time to go, what's that? Oh, it's a dog. Oh, that's perfectly safe. That's just Auntie Mel's chihuahua. That couldn't hurt me. But by that time, your body's in full red alert. Your adrenaline's pumping, ready for you to run or or fight for your life. You can't switch that off very, very quickly. You can't switch that off easily, which is why you go into into, into your fear, even though you know it can't hurt you. You've gone into into fear because it's, some, it's something you learned. The next way we can 
learn fears is by observation. So suppose uh, when you're when you're you're, you're uh, like one year old or less than a year old, every time a parent sees a spider, they freak out, and they do this throughout your whole life. You very quickly learn. Oh, that's what we do. We see one of those those things. We freak out. Got it. I can do that because we, we we learn by observing and, and mimicking mimicking what what those around us do. So we very quickly learned to be scared of spiders, even though we've never had a, a problem with them, even though we don't know what they are, we don't see any danger with them. We've learned that's how that's how you respond. And the third way is we get explicitly taught. Now, there's four words which. I'm willing to bet pretty much every listener here has had said to them when they were growing up, don't talk to strangers. We all get taught that as, as really young children. And it's, it's, there's no two ways about it. It's absolutely life-saving advice. But here's the thing. When was the last time somebody said to you, hey, Aaron, you're big enough and old enough. You can look after yourself. Aaron, it's okay to talk to strangers. Nobody tells us this. Plus, when we're that young, because our parents are instilling this into us because they are terrified of what could happen if we do talk to strangers. So all that emotion comes through. So instead of it being, don't talk to strangers, it comes to us, it seems to come across more as, don't you dare talk to a stranger because if you talk to a stranger, they'll kill you to death and mommy and daddy will be very upset and it'll all be your fault because you spoke to a stranger. It's like, is it any wonder so many grow up scared of speaking to strangers? Or whatever other thing that 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 that's um, that that said to us, get down off there, you'll fall and break your leg. Oh, uh, depending upon the, the the person and the situation, and so on, they've started to develop a fear of heights. So th- those are the three ways in which we we learn fears, usually before the age of about seven, just because of the way our, our minds and brains develop. So it's usually when we're young, but when we're older, things can happen as well. I mean, if if you're in a nasty car crash you could well develop a bit of an aversion to, to being in cars. That is so, that is so interesting. Um, and, you know, my, my next question kind of revolves around, you mentioned, you know, fear is something that we can learn to, um, we can learn to be afraid of something. Um, my next question is actually about kind of intrinsic fear. You mentioned that, you know, when you're born, you're not afraid of, of, of anything. Um, and something that came to mind is the dark and how, you know, it seems like, you know, fundamentally, like almost everyone, if not afraid, they're at least a little bit uncomfortable with, with the dark. And I'm wondering, could that be an example of something that is, you know, uh, that, that humans are intrinsically afraid of? Is there such a thing as intrinsic fear or is every kind of fear a learnt um, response? Got it. And, and it's a great a great question. I mean, yes, when we're way, way, way back, hundreds of thousands of years ago, um, the dark did hold all manner of, of threats to us. And so in those days, we would have had a bit more of a of a fear of, of, of dark because it could hold uh, wolves, which were going to tear us apart and eat us, for example. Or it could hold um, another tribe who was going to come and try and, and, and kill, us all, kill us all off or, or whatever. Um, so do, do we have an intrinsic fear of the dark? Genetically, we're, uh, it's very likely genetically we're predisposed to being able to quickly learn to be afraid of the dark, if you see what I mean. Because those who, those who uh, had no, never learned to be afraid of the dark probably got eaten by those wolves, so they didn't get a chance to pass their, their genes on. So we're probably pred- genetically predisposed to developing fears of the dark, but we're not born scared of the dark. It's um, against stuff that, that, that we learn. So, for example, if, if there's always lights on, there's always, always lights on, so we don't tend to get to experience the dark. So when, so when we uh, encounter the dark, it can be a bit unnerving, not because we're scared of it, but it's just a sort of, oh, don't know what to do. I've never really done this before. Huh. And then we start hearing things and we start imagining stuff or we start hearing tales. I mean, even when we're really young, you stories about going into the dark and all of these things. So we start to hear these and our imagination builds them up and, and, and uh, puts them all together. Whereas on the other hand, if you, if you have uh, babies that when, when they're asleep, it's dark and that they're, they're 
they they grow accustomed to to being in the dark. They're not not scared of the dark, not because they're genetically any different. It's just their environment at the time. They were exposed both to light and dark, so they got comfortable with with uh, with both. So that once they re- reached the point of being able to understand these stories about ghosties and and, and uh, goblins and, and things in the dark, the, uh, it doesn't. Um, and the mind doesn't go, oh, right. If it's dark, it's full of those because they're, they're they're used to having been in been in the dark. Wow, wow, that's so that's so interesting. Um, I think one of the one of the next things I'd love to get into is we've spoken about how people develop fears. Um, now I'd like to talk a little bit about how people can overcome fears and and what are some of the um, what are some of the things that people can do to start facing those fears and, and overcoming them? What does what does that look like in your practice? Cool. So when, when I work with people, um, every time I work with someone, it's always bespoke to that particular person. I don't sort of have, right, here's a checklist. We're going to do this, then this, then this, and then you'll be fine. Because <laughs> life doesn't work that way. Computers might work that way. People don't because they're, they're all different. But the underlying uh, kind of approach, the underlying sort of key point, key things that we, we, we do, uh, or the key aims are, are, are broadly consistent across everyone. And that is to remove, uh, given that we've, it was something taught us to be scared. Somewhere there was a very first event that taught us to be scared. Everything we experienced after that simply reinforced the lesson. So when we can go back to that very first lesson, very first event, and get rid of all the negative emotion that's there. First thing we do is remove the emotion around that event because there's a lot of fear and, and, and so on. So when you're able to kind of view that event, almost like a, a third person, third party watching the event from afar, and there's no emotion there, then you're able to start to change what that event means to you because nothing has any absolute meaning. Things only mean what we what we choose them choose them to mean. Three people can watch the same film and all three of you come away with different interpretations as to what it meant. None of which were the uh, the meaning that the director had in mind when, when they were making it, for example. Things mean whatever we, we choose them to mean. So when we learned to be scared of something, we learned that means dogs are dangerous. And when I see a dog, I should run. Whereas it doesn't mean, doesn't necessarily mean that at all. So we, by getting rid of the emotion, we're then able to, to watch it with the benefit of hindsight and kind of, for us, as a, a third party observing what's happening and start to learn new things that it means. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as we do that, it, it kind of changes our, our perception of, of, of what this thing is, what it means, which means we no longer have the fear. Now, when I uh, uh, mention this to people, they say, well, oh, does that mean you're going to go in and start changing my memories and, and, and changing all of these things? No, we're, we're not as such. I'm not. We, we don't go wade in and, and reprogram your memories and, and that sort of thing. Because there's a very interesting thing about memory. When we remember an event, we're not actually remembering the event. We are remembering the last time that we remembered it. Because it turns out that the act of remembering something actually destroys that memory because the memory is stored with uh, different charges and chemicals and uh, so on in, in the neurons. By accessing that memory, they all, they all disappear. So that memory is gone. But something cool happens. When we remember an event, we actually remember remembering it. So as we remember it, we're storing what we're remembering. Mm. So when you remember something, all you're really doing is just remembering the last time you remembered it. Now, our memory is not fallible. So if you're recalling an event, and part of, uh, so another part of your mind is, re- is recording what you're remembering, it's also going to be recording what's kind of going on for you now, and maybe some of the emotions that's going on now and the, and the situation that's going on now, which means when you remember an event that was really scary, but you're, you're having the time of your life and you're really laughing lots and you keep repeating that process over and over for a few minutes, that memory, when you remember it, instead of remembering all the fear, you're actually remembering some of the 
the laughter and and and, and so on that, that was going last time you remembered it. So you've actually got rid of the the negative emotion, and that that whole thing about our memory changes as as we as we're remembering things. That's why, uh, for example, um, let's try to think of a good example here. If uh, if you witness something, you then tell people what happened. And they then start questioning you about it and say, are you sure that was a red car? Are you sure it wasn't a purple car? It's like, oh, God, now, now there's a thought. Maybe it was purple. I'm sure it was a purple car. I'm sure it was purple. Actually, you know what? Yes, it was a purple car. You've now kind of changed what, what you were seeing it. And even if that time you went, oh, I think it was red. I'm not sure. Next time somebody asks you about it, what has been stored is oh, it was red or purple. And it, it, it memory changes uh, all all the time, so that that's what we're doing is we're basically just removing all the negative emotion around it and changing the meaning, so that next time you you encounter this thing, your mind goes, "Have we had this before?" Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> and that's all right. It's quite funny actually. It's a funny looking little spider, <laughs> and we're 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 fine with it. Wow, that is that is so <laughs> fascinating. So, um, yeah, I I want to unpack that a little bit. So. It seems like, you know, overcoming fear has a lot to do with rewiring your your memories. And I've, I've read about this topic before, the idea that when we access memories, we're actually changing them a little bit from time to time. And um, what you mentioned around how, you know, even the way that other, you know, you can talk to other people about these memories can influence the memory itself. That reminds me of this phenomenon called the the Mandela effect, which I'm not sure if you may have heard yes. of. Um, yes, that that comes to mind. It's a great um, example of it. Yeah, and and something I, I'd love to 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 get into is, you know, along this along this thread of of reprogramming and kind of changing your relationship to these memories. What is the role of of neuroplasticity in in this process? It's all it's all kind of part of it. Um, so as as you as you're going through this, especially when you when you're changing the meanings that you associate with this thing, that's reprogramming that that aspect of the brain. So that instead of the brain uh, memory, your mind going, this means danger. Seeing this means we're at risk. If we encounter this, it means we could die. It means we have to run. Yeah, the neuroplasticity has allowed us to change the connections that they uh, between the neurons and change the meaning, so that instead, when we encounter a situation, we go, "Oh yes, this means maybe need to be uh, alert, keep an eye out, but it's fine." This because last time I encountered this, I survived. Every time I met a dog, I've survived. Hmm, maybe dogs aren't dangerous actually, as long as I'm careful with them. I mean, obviously, if it's snarling, I'll keep away. But if its tail's wagging and it's rolling on its back with its legs in the air, it's safe to tickle it. So we, we've changed changed uh, the the meanings that, we're, that we that we associate with these things, and that's where the neuroplasticity comes in. Because if if we weren't able to change those connections and make new, new neural connections, then well, we wouldn't be able to learn. We would never be able to change anything. We would just be the same as we were the day we were born. Mm, wow. Um, <laughs> so. Keith, something I'd love to dive into is one big yeah. part of of being in your element and and being able to kind of perform at your best is is naturally it's dealing with it's dealing with fear. And yeah. I was reading this book by um, Stephen Kotler. I'm not sure if you if you're familiar with with some of his work, but he's written a lot about the idea of of flow and and peak performance. And he just mm-hmm. released this new book called Chasing the Impossible. And one of the um, one of the things he writes about is how some of the biggest, you know, um, the the highest achievers, the 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 biggest performers, the people who, you know, the extreme athletes and whatnot, their relationship to fear is very interesting. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about how a lot of people want to overcome fear, but in some cases, I feel as though, and I'd love your in your 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 um, your input on this. I feel as though fear can actually be used as a tool. Um, Very much so. And, you know, a lot of these really high performers, these these athletes, they 
they they claim that they don't necessarily have an absence of this fear, but rather they actually use that to motivate them to do those things that actually make them afraid. Um, and I wanted to, to dive into that a little bit and, and to, to get your, your insight into how we could actually use fear in our lives to help us do some of these big things. That is... Uh... It is a really fascinating topic. Uh, it touches on uh, something which which I uh, often share with people, and that is that fear, despite everything we think about it, despite all the stuff we're told, fear is actually our friend when you get deep down to it. Fear is our friend because fear is simply your unconscious alerting you to the fact that you might have overlooked something or there's something you need to just maybe double check. Fear is, is that voice. Is that your, it's, it's, it's that friend going, Aaron, are you sure we've, we've switched the cooker off? Are you sure we've packed enough? Have we got enough fuel for this? It's, 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 it's that, it's that voice that's just saying, look, there's something here we need to, we need to double check. Something we need to, to, to be aware of. And certainly, especially when, you, when you're going into new situations, you get that kind of element of fear. It's not saying don't do this. It's simply going, are you actually sure we've checked everything? Is there anything that we're, that, that we're missing? Plus, and so, I mean, when, when you start to, to really acknowledge fear for what it is and start working with your unconscious instead of fighting it, instead of feel the fear and do it anyway, or false evidence appearing real and all these, these things that was, when you, when you acknowledge, Hey, this is just my unconscious saying, Hey, I want you to succeed with this. We've got to make this succeed. And this is something which I think could be a risk to this project. Let's pause and take a look. When you start to do that, wonderful things happen because you start to have greater, greater success because you're catching the, the problems earlier. You have less fear because instead of your unconscious having to shout at you, you're kind of getting that little gut feeling or instinct or whatever you want to call it. You're picking up on that earlier and earlier. So you're starting to make these, these course corrections earlier and earlier. And the thing with... Um, the way in which some athletes and and, and so on uh, use fear, it's the um, the body's response which fear triggers, which they find so um, sometimes addictive. Uh, the the adrenaline, the thrill, the adrenaline rush. Because when your body's in that mode, your all your senses are heightened, which is a, a, a safety thing because your senses are heightened, so you can bring in more information and assess the threat. But it also feels so wonderful when those senses are heightened and your heart's pumping that bit more and you're breathing that bit more deeply. You feel, it's been described as you feel a bit more alive when you, when you can harness that. And for some people, that, that becomes a really, really wonderful feeling, something that they, they, they enjoy. So they chase that little bit of fear just to make them go, oh, yes, let's do this, which, which is where fear can, can, can really, really help. And many of us experience that in a slightly different way in, in our own lives. I mean, if you think about it, horror films, scary stories, we love these things. I mean, we, we would absolutely hate to be being chased through the woods by, by a vampire. But when we're watching a film, we still experience some of that, that fear, some of that, that excitement, some of that, that thrill. And we're doing it from a, a place of safety because we, we know it's just a film. Or it's just a book. We know nothing's actually going to happen, but we still get to experience that and just just get some of that, almost feeling a bit more alive. And oh, what's going to happen? So we even so not just athletes and and extreme sports people and so on, but in our everyday life, when we're watching a, a story where there's a bit of suspense, oh, what's going to happen? Are they going to get out? Oh, it's all tapping into, into that same sort of thing. It's just heightening all of our, our senses, heightening our reactions, our responses. And it can, un, in the right conditions and when safely done, can actually feel quite uh, quite exhilarating. Of course, we do have to be careful. We don't get addicted to it, which a small number of people can do, just like you can get addicted to, to pretty much anything. They get addicted to that rush and to the thrill and the sense of danger until unfortunately they push it too far into a situation which is too dangerous, which is why many will end up unfortunately losing their lives. But as long as you can keep it, keep it and iron it, keep it under control and then enjoy it responsibly, as they say, it can actually be a, a thrill for some people, for other people they absolutely hate it because it just does not feel right. And that's absolutely fine. Whatever works for, for each individual, but that's what's going on for some people. It's, it's that, 
it's not necessarily the fear itself, but it's the thrill that the senses and, and, and the exhilaration that, that, that comes with the fear as your body's preparing to, to fight or, or run. That's what's what gets people. Mm, yeah. You know, something that comes to mind to me is I, um, especially a couple of years ago, I used to have quite a big fear of, of heights actually. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I very vividly remember the first time that I went on a roller coaster and mm-hmm. as you can imagine, it was probably, it was a very, it was a terrifying experience, but mm-hmm. the feeling that I had while facing that fear and, and actually, you know, overcoming it, it gave me such a rush that yeah. I I loved roller coasters ever since. But that fear of heights hasn't gone away entirely. One of the reasons why mm. I enjoy roller coasters so much is because I get to face that fear and feel that rush. Um, yes. And that, that from a really, position of safety. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, yeah. But that that has that has stuck with me. That has stuck with me ever yeah. since, and it definitely highlighted what you were what you were talking <laughs> about about you know feeling feeling this 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 rush. Um, mm. And wow, that is that is fascinating. I know that we're we're coming up close to the to the end of the hour. But one 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 thing I would really love to to um, to ask is, you know, we've spoken about some of the ways that we can overcome fear um, by changing our relationship to memories and some other techniques mm-hmm. that you mentioned. What are some of the things? Um, maybe two or three things that people can do to face their fear in the moment when they haven't had that sure. prep work and they may just find themselves, you know, oh crap, I'm on stage now or, oh crap, <laughs> you know, like I can, I can see, I can see the, the ground a couple stories below. Like how can people cope with that fear response? Great question. And, and you're right. Sometimes, sometimes we do just have to face it in the moment. Well, the first thing I say is, breathe. And that sounds a daft thing to say, but our breath really can have an impact on the, the, uh, on our minute to minute by minute, second by second emotions. So pause and take two or three slow, deep breaths, closing your eyes. If, 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 if that helps, um, but just pause and take a few slow, really slow, really deep breaths, meaning all the way in, hold the breath for a moment and breathe out again. Doing that is will always slightly calm the body. So just have this. I mean, sometimes it's 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 difficult, and it may take a few goes because you 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 try breathing a bit more slowly, but you're still breathing quite fast. But just go with it until you get some nice, slow, deep breaths, and you only have to do it for a moment or two. Because what this does is this gets plenty of oxygen into the body and into the brain, because when we're we're, we're uh, scared and so we <laughs> often start short breathing, which lowers the amount of can lower the amount of oxygen that we've got there because we're, we're breath is just constantly going. We don't get to absorb so much. I mean, take some slow, deep breaths that lets you get plenty of oxygen in for just a, a couple of moments. It also kind of forces you to suspend whatever else that you're thinking about and everything else that you're doing, and that can be enough just to help. So that when you re-engage, you're doing it from a slightly calmer perspective. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is going to uh, go from someone being terrified of heights to I can walk, I can walk a tightrope, no bother, I'll just take a couple of deep breaths. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but what it can, these are just about helping you to lower the uh, lower the fear, lower the the tension and so on that's going on. So that's the first thing. You take a couple of slow, deep breaths, and as you do that, maybe just focus on something. Find something that's calm and relaxing that you could focus upon just to help, help you to calm and relax. Because here's the thing that the, the mind can't tell the difference between real and imagined. So if you're remembering a time when you were really calm, your body can't, body and mind can't tell the difference between you actually remembering that time and you actually being calm. So it will start to, to, to calm a little bit. And it's all about just taking enough of an edge off things so that you can unfreeze and you can deal with what, whatever you're, you're, you're dealing with. So those would be, be two things. And then the third one is just remind yourself of how safe the situation is. For example, if you're about to speak with an audience, just remind yourself, they're here to listen to what I've got to say. They want to hear what I've got to say. So of course, they're not going to start throwing things and booing and jeering and laughing. They want to listen to what I have to say and a really key thing when you're delivering a talk 
nobody knows what you are going to say. Which means if you skip a bit, or you kind of mix the order in which you're going to do them, nobody knows. So just carry on. Just talk. Nobody's going to know if you skipped a bit. They're here to listen to what you have to say. So by by doing just those three things, okay, it can still be a scary thing, but it just takes the edge off enough so that you can get through it, or at least you can start. Because very often you'll find, as you found with the roller coaster, once you start, then it starts to become enjoyable. You you kind of settle into it and then enjoy it. So it's just about overcoming that initial that initial. Uh, so slow, deep breaths. Remember a time when you were calm. And uh, just remember, if if you're speaking on stage, for example, people are there to hear you. Or if if you're you're in an, an airplane, think of the sheer number of planes that are flying every minute of every day. Wow, that is Same. so interesting. Yeah, so it, it seems like we've got three 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 started strategies there: visual uh, breathwork, um, mm-hmm. visualization, and an element of reassurance. Um, yes, that's so- a very good way of summing them up. That sounds that sounds awesome. Um, well, Keith, it has been a pleasure getting to have this conversation with you and to learn more about fear and what goes into developing fears, how we can overcome them, and a bit about your story and background. I think it's been a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure that the listeners are going to find this really, really interesting. Um, before we wrap up, um, I would love to you know, if, if, if someone wants to learn more about your, um, your story, about your work and your practice, how can they get in touch? How can they find out more about what you do? Uh, you can find me at my website, keithblakemornoble.com, or you'll find me across most social media. Just look for Keith Blake or Noble. I'm, I'm blessed to be the only person on the planet with, with this name. So that, that does make it a little bit easier. So if you just search for Keith Blake Noble on social media or the website you'll find and do connect get in touch and love to have chats with people awesome well there you have you there you have it folks if you are having trouble overcoming some fear um then keith is your guy um so yeah i would encourage anyone to go ahead and and reach out and see see what keith can do for you um so yeah that was it for today's episode thank you so much for listening everyone and i hope you have a fantastic rest of your day Thank you for listening to the show. In Your Element is proudly brought to you by a single dude from his London apartment. This show does not have social media. I'm not going to ask that you leave a rating or a follow. Instead, I'd love to see you coming back just because you're seeking something different, are genuinely curious, and are looking for ways to really find and live in your element, just as I am. As always, keep being you, keep crushing life, and keep finding your element. I'll see you in the next one.